Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by the entire crew. I have Natasha Moskarinas here. Natasha, hello. Hello, it's good to be back. It's so good to hear your voice. You're at our mobility event. We'll talk about that in just a second, but yes. we have to say hello to Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. Hi. I've missed you all week. How are you doing? I know. It's so great to be back. I missed not being on the show last week. It felt weird. It did feel weird. Also, I feel like we've all been so busy that it's kind of like I needed this break just to get an excuse to sit down with you two to say hi and hear how you're doing. I know. Aww, yeah. I don't know what this is about us or the world, but <laughs> it's been a lot. Yeah, it has. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening in, here's what's going to go on. We're going to talk about the mobility event for like a hot second because Natasha is on site and Marianne and I are not. So we're very curious about what's going on there. We have three deals-ish of the week for you arrived, Kolkata Chai, and then what's up with Zenly. Then we're going to talk a little bit about Twitter bots and Elon because we can't not talk about that. It's kind of the leading tech story of the week still. Then we're going to have a unicorn vibe check. If you don't know what a vibe check is, well, you'll find out. We're going to talk about Monday.com, Spot on an Unit, and then we're going to wrap with a more serious conversation about content moderation and the tragedy in the United States city of Buffalo. So expect a tonal shift when we get to that point. Whew. Let's get started. Natasha Moscarinas, you're at Mobility. What's going on? Are you having fun? I'm having fun. I'm coming at you live from San Mateo. We have hundreds of people at the event and it was funny. Well, one, I got to meet Maggie on the equity team and that has been yeah. lovely just to meet another coworker in person and be able to hug and hang out with them. And then on the work front, I casually walked past a flying car that could actually only fit someone my height, which is kind of like great. I'm like, Ooh. this is for one, short people are being thought of in design processes. Um, and it's just, it's a funny event to be at because I'm someone who doesn't drive on highways or like flying. And I was lucky enough to have a panel about urban air mobility and advanced air taxis where I interviewed Joby Aviation. I interviewed mm. Up Partners and I also interviewed Whisk Era, which is kind of like the brainchild of Boeing and Kitty Hawk, which is that autonomous yes. focused company. A lot of learning, but a lot of, I think, really hype people excited to see each other for the first time. Marianne, I'm jealous because one one, I miss, I love going to TC events because the team is there, but also I feel like mobility sounds like one of the funnest events that oh, we host. Yeah. Everything else is like enterprise SaaS and then, <laughs> or flying cars. Like, I, I mean, come know. on. You can't get much cooler than that. Sorry. Yeah. My goal today after this is to go see some demos. You get to jump into different cars and see what they feel like. And so, I don't know. It's going to be fun. I'm jealous. Well, while Natasha has all the fun, the group of us are going to talk about a number of very hot deals and have fun of our own. And we're going to kick off Marianne with a look at Arrived. And I'm very curious about this company because I feel like we have talked about its space and market before. But in this case, the company has very interesting backers and a very interesting dollar entry point. Yeah, this company I actually found quite fascinating. It has arrived. It raised $25 million in a Series A round led by Forerunner Ventures. Interestingly, Bezos Expeditions, the personal investment company of Jeff Bezos, is a backer and not a first-time backer. The firm also put money in its last round. So I was intrigued by Arrive because we have had a number of stories of startups offering people a way to buy real estate, like shares of real estate, like fractional investing. But what's interesting about Arrived is it's actually went through a process with the SEC to make this kind of like taking a house public, which is fascinating mm. to me. It spent a year working with a regulatory setup with the SEC. And basically what you could do in certain markets, if you're in certain markets, is get online, browse rental properties, click a button, 
It says buy now and you could invest as little as $100 in a property. The company handles pretty much all the rest, they say. They manage the property. They work with a property management company to maintain it, to find renters. And basically what they claim, again, is you're supposed to just sit back and get quarterly dividends that are proceeds from the rental income. Why why let us buy in is my question with the companies like this. If you're arrived and you've done all the work to build up the network of real estate, to get the houses, to get the property management companies, why sell part of it to me? Why not just keep it mm-hmm. all for yourself and ride that own <laughs> cash flow? Well, you know, the founders said that they really wanted to give the everyday American an opportunity to actually invest in homes because how many of us have thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to like just own a bunch of rental properties and earn all this passive income? But it's not easy to do. You have to in many cases, be an accredited investor, which means right. that your net worth has to be over a million dollars. And that's that's really not fair. That excludes a large, very large portion of the population. So I do like the fact that they're trying to bring in people who normally wouldn't have the means, the funds, you know, to invest in rental properties and give them a way to do so. So I think that part of it's very cool. Natasha, I'm curious if this is attractive to you. You know, thinking about retirement savings, we have long time horizons. Do you think you would put in some of your, I don't know, longer term savings into the real estate through this method? I would because, well, one, the traditional way of doing things is not accessible to me at this stage. And two, there's another startup I covered in this space called Fractional, which you mentioned in the story. And it was all about a social layer on top of fractional ownership of properties and you can invest with friends. And I think originally I was really interested in that, but I am more interested in a process that's hands off. And yes. that's a little less like, I don't know, emotional for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm, right. This one feels like it's just something you could put money in. I am curious though, like how they teach users about earnings and how stable this alternative asset is. Mm-hmm. It's like the yeah. question for any fintech that wants to help people put their money into something that's not as accessible and historically wasn't. So yeah. I would have to do more research. Yeah. I'm not so sure about how much education. I think they're just, maybe they're assuming that the people who are on their site know enough about it, but that's a good point. I think that it's just kind of fascinating because you can invest up to, I think, ten to $15,000, they said. And also another interesting thing is they won't let any one person own more than 9.8% of any property. And that's to make it more tax friendly. I don't know. It feels like they've really thought all this out. Curious to see how they continue to grow. It seems like they claim that they had a lot of demand, like they put four properties up recently and in, no, 12 properties. I don't know. They put a bunch of properties up and <laughs> sold out within four hours. Yeah. They're saying the demand is there. Yeah. We don't have time to get into the social commentary of if it's reasonable to actually have more properties set up as rentals and reduce the overall supply of single family homes. Yeah. But I will say a lot of companies are working on this. There's also another company that's doing single IP of commercial properties, for example, those you buy into those on a fractional basis. So Natasha, obviously a very busy space. Very busy space. And one that I'm happy we can kind of track through a market downturn to see if it actually has legs. Yeah. Oh gosh, that goes for a lot of things. In fact, I think that goes for everything. (laughs) <laughs> this year. But sticking to the more positive news, we'll get to sadder stuff later on. Natasha, there's a company called Kata Chai, and I thought they were not into venture capital money, and yet here they are in TechCrunch and equities. What's going on there? Yeah, so Kolkata Chai, if you're in New York or if you're Indian American or South Asian, you've probably heard of it because this is one of those loud brands that was early into telling us that chai tea was a repetitive name that Starbucks decided to put on its menu anyways. And it has a shop in New York that sells you know, good masala chai. It's a big, big promise because if any of you drink chai or know anyone who does, there's so many different varieties that it's a really high bar. But, you know, co-founded by Brothers this week, they announced that they've raised $1 million in funding from a bunch of investors. And yeah, up 
until then, they had kind of exhausted every single other type of financing. So they eventually turned to venture capital. It felt like a very interesting inflection point for a traditionally DTC business. Well, actually, I was curious, though. I think in your story, you said they chose to go with more like individual investors, right, rather than a bunch of firms. Yeah, yeah. They chose to go with no lead firm and no institutional VC firm. Mm -hmm. They basically took money from Boba Guys founders. And Boba Guys is actually a really good company to be comparing them to because Boba Guys, similarly, e-commerce slash retail business, they're focused on Boba Tea and making that more, you know, authentic and scalable across the country. So they took money from those guys. They took it from 500 startups partners, Sharma Brands, Emmy Eats, which is trying to reinvent instant ramen. So I think it was a lot of like super fans, but they were, I don't know, I'm interested to hear what you guys think. They were pretty upfront that this isn't them being kind and accepting crowdfunding money. They picked people that they were like very much, these are useful advisors for us and high net worth individuals. It's not for the average Kolkata Chai consumer. Yeah, Marianne, given the industry connection in some of those backers, it feels like strategic money to some degree. Yeah, exactly. Strategic money, which makes sense. And I feel like that's a smart way to go because they, for so long, didn't want to take external capital. So if they were going to do so, it makes sense that they chose people who could actually help them in more than just giving them cash. Yeah. But a million dollars, obviously, are a very small round. The definition of a seed round, really, even though the company's already been around for a while. Natasha, before we move on, is their chai good? I guess is the question that oh, I have to ask. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. I've heard good things, though, from Indian people, and that is just something I, you never hear. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Grace said it's really good. I love that. I, yeah, so I don't know. I, I feel like the fact that it has like a stamp of approval from people I trust, I'm, that never happens. This, this makes <laughs> me want to go to New York because I've had chai, obviously. I've always liked it. But now I'm kind of terrified that I've been having like the Taco Bell equivalent of chai up till now and I haven't had actual chai so I, I think Taco I need Bell's to good but yeah you gotta have the real thing I think they're moving into e-commerce Alex so you could always order it yeah no I, I might but I'm just saying that no one goes to Taco Bell and says oh yes good authentic Mexican food what we do is we go oh I'm high and it's three o'clock in the morning and that's fine there's a time like, and a good. place but like it's not authentic anyways let's talk really briefly about Zenly so yes. go back to like 2017 okay and Snap buys Zenly and I forgot about this deal so when this story hit TechCrunch, I had to go back through the archives and find our coverage. But in August of 2017, when Snap disclosed its Q2 numbers, we discovered they paid $213 million for Zenly. And Zenly is a social mapping application. And I'm curious, have either of you ever used Zenly? No. I haven't. The name felt familiar, yeah. but I haven't heard. So. I hadn't either. Apparently, it's very popular. That's why I asked, because I feel like it doesn't come up in my my social groups, my friend groups. So I don't know if I'm like in the wrong demographic or the wrong geography, but I didn't know much about it. But apparently, tens of millions of people use it. And they're rolling out not just a social mapping tool, but almost an equivalent to a traditional mapping service like Google Maps or Apple Maps or Bing Maps. And my first thought was, looking through how they did this, is isn't it great to see actual competition of the incumbents from a smaller company? Now, I know Snap's not a small company, but like, isn't it about time someone took on Google and Apple and Microsoft in the mapping world? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. I, yes. What I really love this paragraph in the story that the result is a beautiful living and breathing mapping experience. So therefore comparing Zenly's maps with Google Maps or Apple Maps isn't exactly fair. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Because those maps are incredibly static, boring, and they haven't changed much. And like, exactly. I'm just going to say, I stand Google Earth when it was just coming out. Like I remember living at my parents' house in Oregon. I must've been like, like 15 or something. So, you know, a kid. And I showed my parents that now with the internet, essentially, you could look at the world and zoom in all the way to our backyard. 
And my parents were like legitimately gobsmacked by this because at the time it was such a revolution. And then it feels like the innovation stopped. Like they just like stopped. They just kept right. making maps slightly harder to use. So right. I'm hyped about I mean, this. yeah, Ma- maps are a big deal. They help you visualize space and impact. And I agree. I feel like they've felt so static for so long. And part of me is like, is this the same as disrupting email? Like first lens is like, are you really going to get people to stop using the easiest thing that's already on their phone? But when you do think about how much more maps can do for the average person, if they get a little bit more invasion, a little bit more attention, it feels like a less selfish and nice to have and a more need to have. I wrote about felt last year. I don't know if you guys remember. It was kind of like, we want to help you think in maps and help people make the media more mainstream. And I just like love that idea. I'm talking to them soon again. And it just made me think a little bit about, we still don't have an easy way to build maps together on the internet and integrate data sets. Like we can't do that easily. After this, companies can't do that easily. There's like enterprise consumer. I mean, yeah, good time to be a map startup. It yeah, like- well, it's, it's hard is the thing. So for mm. Zenly, what they did was they decided, I think it was back in 2019, they wanted to build their own kind of like more pervasive mapping product. The problem is the world is big and it's complex and roads are constantly being built and changed and so forth. So you can't just like literally hire some people, send them out with cameras and start again. So they did use OpenStreetMap and some third-party data to kind of like smoosh it all together. And then they added animations, fog of war, if you know how video games work. And so like, I'm hoping that by bringing social data and fun together, they can make a mapping experience that actually competes with the incumbents. Because Natasha, your email example is great. Gmail was a revolution. And then since then, it's been a stagnant pond of scum. One quick thing about Zenly. For now, I think the new maps are only available in a handful of cities. They're focused on cities that are kind of like major landmarks, like Tokyo, Paris, LA, New York. Yeah, and they're rolling this out to, I think, about 5% of users. So I I did oversell this. Let me back up. Zenly's rolling out (laughs) updated maps for about eight people. There we go. (laughs) Those eight people. I'm just excited to try it out. (laughs) Sadly, I'll just point this out. Providence didn't make the cut of a city with sufficiently uh, dense landmark density. So I'm just going to say, f*** you, Zenly. Yeah, how about that? All right, let's uh, let's move on to something else that is equally serious and important, which is the, the latest in the Elon Musk Twitter saga. And I think that this has actually broken Elon because he's gone from being like this court jester of Twitter to being like a shitty right wing commentator knockoff, like kind of like a Diet Coke Fox News analyst, you know, like he's saying like woke nation and attacking Yale. And I'm like, bro, two things. One, get some new friends. Right. And then two, maybe don't tweet for 20 minutes. You know, like even I know when it's time for me to log off, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm angry. I should stop tweeting. Where do we want to start? Oh my God. There's so I'm, much to go over. I mean, it's unbelievable, really. Like I just, I'm floored. I continuously get floored by the things that Elon Musk does. And he violates so many things. He breaks so many rules and he keeps getting away with it. It's shocking to me. But now I think the big deal this week, right, is that he's trying to say he may not buy Twitter because he's worried that there's too many users that are actually bots. And the big question is, did you not figure this out before you made your huge offer? I mean, why are you just now bringing it up? And the reason we all think is... He doesn't actually... He doesn't want to really buy it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's weird. (laughs) The hard part about what's happening, and as you perfectly just described, Marianne, is like, there's the news that's happening, which is Elon Musk might not follow through with the deal. And then there's the method in which we're finding out about the news, which is Elon clashing with his contract and kind of going against his contract that he's in right now, which is helping him buy it. So it's like from both angles. And so that's why it's hard for me to like know even where to start or where to focus on because it's like Mm -hmm. so many layers. I think the very clear through line between both Elon Musk's actions 
experience and the news we're finding out as a result of them is that it's clear that he doesn't really want to buy this thing. And it really sucks that it's watering down the work of Twitter people trying to cover it (laughs) and just kind of the lawyers behind it as well. I just feel like there's, there's so much happening that it's really hard to follow this, like a traditional news story. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. It's also been fascinating to see who stepped up. I think Chris Dixon was going to put money into this. I think Jason Kalkanis was like putting together money for this and Elon's in there. And there's another VC firm that's putting money. Was it Sequoia? I forget who it was. It's Andreessen, I believe. No, that's Chris Dixon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe Um, anyways, the point is it's a murderer's row of white dudes that are ponying up money to support this weird crusade. Well, I think a big issue is this. He's violating non-disclosure agreements that he's made with the company. He's talking about things that he should not, yes. you know, in frat conferences on Twitter. <gasps> and he's acting so maturely by responding to the CEO of Twitter with a poop emoji. I mean, really, come on. What is this? Are we like five years old? I, I mean, it's just shocking. No, even for a five-year-old, it's not very sophisticated humor. But early in the saga, Elon was talking about how, you know, he wanted to make Twitter more politically neutral when he still seemed to want to buy Twitter and wanted to work on bots as a thing versus complaining about bots as an issue that makes the deal untractable, right? And that went out the window really quick. He's now referring to buying Twitter as a way to, quote, own the libs, which is uh, idiot speak for um, basically annoying people who are interested in a more equitable world. Anyways, and now he's he's using the word woke, which has become kind of like a shibboleth among right-wing people to essentially complain about anyone who wants a more kind society, like don't be a jerk to trans people. Ah, you're woke. So to me, like, I don't trust him to take over this company because I don't think he has anything like the seriousness needed to re- actually to take on free speech questions and let alone handle foreign government's demands for user information. Natasha, am I being too negative? Because I'm kind of mad. No, no, I don't think any of us are being too negative, but we're all going to probably be on the same page here. And I'm sure we're going to get some fun Twitter mentions as a result. But I'll just add yeah. that there's something specifically frustrating about us knowing this was going to happen. Us seeing how he's talked and violated SEC regulations on Twitter before buying, trying to buy Twitter. Twitter and seeing his attitude towards people of color and leadership. I just, I think that it's very frustrating that there's like the, we know it's going to happen, but capitalism is making this happen anyways conversation that we've had and continue to have. But the reason it makes sense for us to talk about on this show is that it still is like tech history. And it's also like coming at a really interesting time for when the market is changing. Elon's words are not kind of being looked at in a vacuum. They're around a lot of doom and gloom. So I just think that's like an interesting time for him to be also falling on the sword. Well, I mean, falling apart falling on the sword, kind of pick one. The thing that I think is most important to realize is that Elon is not operating in good faith here. And I think Matt Levine from Bloomberg had the right quote, responding to Elon's complaints about Twitter's bot issues and spam issues, which were known, and again, were part of the reason why he wanted to do the deal. Matt wrote the following. I'm just going to quote a couple sentences here because I can't improve on it. I think it is important to be clear here that Musk is lying. The spam bots are not why he is backing away from the deal, as you can tell from the fact that the spam bots are why he did the deal. He has produced no evidence at all that Twitter's estimates are wrong, and certainly not that they are materially wrong or made in bad faith. Of course, Musk can get out of the deal only if Twitter's filings are wrong in a way that could cause a material adverse effect on Twitter, which is vanishingly unlikely. So what we are seeing here is Elon essentially just being a jerk because he doesn't want to buy the company anymore, but that Twitter didn't want him to buy to begin with, but he just started the process anyways. Like, I, I don't it, know, take a nap. It's kind of like someone asking someone else out on a date and that person's kind of like, eh, I'm not so sure, but okay. I mean, you're really being pushy about it. I'll give it a chance. And then that person's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. I don't want to go out with you. I mean, what the f- 
<laughs> I, I'm yeah. just, um, and another thing, I'm really disappointed, not just in him, because he's done this sort of thing in the past, but I'm disappointed in the whole system, system. because he I keeps agree. getting away with this shit. And, and it's like, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? As long as you're rich, you're white, you're a male, you can do whatever the f*** you want. And that that's really like a sobering thing to see. Is it though? Isn't it great? <laughs> Uh, that was sorry. That was a okay. So it turns out when Marianne is mad, not the time to make a self-referential joke. Okay, I'll, data point for me. I'll just I'll add that like specifically the structure that like journalistically, I'm glad I'm not on the Elon beat. And as a just anyone right now who has kind of emotionally followed this, it is very sobering. Marianne, to your point, a lawyer. Uh, well, we'll link it in the post, but this lawyer Alejandra Carabayo summed it up really well for me and just talked about how illogical he's trying to make logic sound in that we can't always have numbers for everything. And so to bet a deal on finding exact numbers is kind of, yeah, just trying to do a workaround. I don't know. Maybe we, maybe we don't have to talk about Elon again because I feel like it's like, I wanted to talk about it this week, but now as we're talking about it, I'm like, this is just not helpful. Like, it's not helpful for me at least. Well, I think that's the right attitude to close the section on because it is a $44 billion deal that is now being bandied about like a first date to Marianne's point. And it's hard to be serious about unserious things, but when the unserious actions are around a serious thing, it's hard to not care at all. So anyways, let's go ahead and stop being mad about that and how much energy we've had to spend going back and figuring out what the f*** is going on and instead talk about unicorns, everyone's favorite topic. Yay. Marianne, you and I have covered so many unicorns in the last couple of years, given that you've been on the fintech beat, which has been hyperactive. Just to give us a little bit of context, what's the current temperature out there amongst fintech unicorns? Are we seeing continued optimism? Has there been a a pullback? Like, has there been a sentiment shift? I'm hearing of definite pullbacks, like there's more caution in investing and more VCs seem to be looking at the early stage, which I think we're hearing, you know, that's a widespread thing. But yet this week I covered two very large fundings in the space. I don't think, I know there's a lag, but I don't think in at least one of these that it was something that was closed a few months Mm. ago. So I feel like fintech is definitely continuing to sort of be an outlier when it comes to this venture slowdown. However, the pace at which valuations are climbing does seem to be slowing down. And that is evidenced by Spot-On's raise, their payment software startup, their arrival to like block and toast. They raised $300 million in a Series F, valuation of $3.6 billion. Their last raise, which I think was about eight months ago, their valuation was $3.15 billion. Just three and a half months prior to that, their valuation was $1.875 billion. So we're seeing a very dramatic slowdown in the pace of valuation increase. And the pace at which capital is being raised. So we're seeing valuations go up less and rounds take longer to close for the hottest companies. Now, obviously, this is an outlier company. Most firms don't raise rounds that quickly and move their valuation up as fast as Spot On has. But it does go to show that some deals are still happening in the world. But Natasha, as we saw kind of this week via the earnings of Monday.com, a prior unicorn startup that went public not that long ago, investors aren't as stoked about results as they used to be. And so when Monday.com posts fast growth, they end up with essentially a 10x AR multiple, which last year would have been indicated that they were kind of 
but now it almost feels like a like a crown. Oh my god, yes. I am so glad you wrote this story and pulled out that detail because the constant thing that VCs are telling me is that if you're a good company, you can still raise. If you have strong business fundamentals, you'll be fine. And it's like, no, I don't think that's true. Yes, maybe you can do something and you won't shut down and you can get an extension round or you can get like a slight markup, but we have to definitely change our framing on what you can still grow and what you can still access capital means. Like it just is annoying me so much that VCs keep telling me this because it's hurting other founders who do have profitable businesses but aren't able to raise. Like that is very much happening right now. Yeah. And to, to kind of put into context how much more difficult things are, Bessemer Venture Capital Firm does a state of the cloud report every year. Mary Dinorfrier from the growth team actually wrote about it for TC, which is which is nice of her. According to her work, companies that are unicorns and are private still that have reached a hundred million worth of ARR or annual recurring revenue are about 150. And there's more than a thousand unicorns out there, which means that if it's just 150 out of a thousand, 15 per percent, one sixth is 16.66, which means that less than one in six unicorns that has a $1 billion valuation or more has reached the revenue threshold required to at monday.com's 10x multiple actually be worth a billion dollars in today's market. So what that means is 850 unicorns at least are really underwater, not in their mortgage, but in their valuation, which is kind of the same thing in startup land. (laughs) And I am in awe of how many unicorns have revenues so modest that their valuation makes no sense. Like that's gotta be tough. But isn't that, isn't that why we're here? I mean, a lot of these companies that went public over the past year, year and a half or so that aren't performing very well are companies that may have had pretty strong revenue growth, but deep, deep losses. And so I think this gap between like how high the revenue is, but yet how much the, a company continues to lose or burn, that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I, I was talking to Mar from Pair VC yesterday at TC Mobility. She made a really good point where she was like, humans are not that complicated. We've been talking about this is a bubble. This is a bubble. This is a bubble for so many months, yet continue to write checks, continue to do all these things. And now that it's going backwards, you know, we're saying that, yep, see, it's happening. And we're not really acting ahead of time or proactively, we're acting reactively. And that's kind of what this is all telling me is like, we always knew valuations were artificial. And by we, I'm not saying us three should have known better, but I'm just saying that like the market at large was very superficial. We knew that. And now that it's changing, it's just, it feels like a weird, like we knew it was exactly going to happen, but I guess we still have to care and cover it anyways. As you can tell, I'm a little cynical this week, but. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. So Natasha's point is like, if you're watching a YouTube video of a train and there's a bus on the train tracks and you're like, oh man, it's going to hit the bus. And then you keep watching the train gets closer and closer closer and honks his horn and then smashes the bus and you keep watching. That's where we are with valuations today. Exactly. I mean, and we all knew it was coming. We, we knew it was coming, but the bus was, <laughs> it's, it's there. All that in mind, the same way that every startup became really relevant in the beginning of the pandemic, I see them becoming relevant again. So like Marianne, how you noticed that there's like this different time block in between raises. Alex, you notice like the markups are slightly different compared to the revenue. Now it's like a lot of things are becoming relevant again. Like a lot of stories that we probably wouldn't have picked up are becoming very useful markers. And so I'm calling it, I think that unicorn valuations are relevant again. And if someone, maybe not in the fintech space, unfortunately, but if someone (laughs) hits unicorn valuation, I'll be surprised because VCs, to give you a $1 billion valuation, need you to prove a lot more these days than they did six months ago, 12 months ago, probably three years ago. Oh, it's well said. And actually I'm covering a a round next week. I'm breaking my no funding round coverage that I, (laughs) well, the reason why it's (laughs) Not to give away too much, but like it's a company that I've covered before, and I I know the the CEO, and they're becoming a unicorn, and 
my first question to the company literally yesterday, uh, well, you know, Tuesday, by the time you hear this, I guess Wednesday, I can count, <laughs> uh, was why are you raising 2021 money in 2022? Literally question one. Ooh. And so that's how strange it felt to me. Now the company's doing very well, yeah. but I wonder what the valuation would have been last year if they had raised this round. Would it have been a billion dollars yeah. more? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. It's kind of crazy. Oh my God. I, I want to write about mm -hmm. the YC memo. I know we don't have time today to get into it, but that kind of no. as a continuing conversation. Yeah. One last point, and then we're going to do our, our last convo of the day, which is going to be a tone shift. Okta is a company that we all use because it's our authentication and identity backend for our corporate landscape, if you will. So we're all very familiar with resetting our Okta password every 17 minutes. But what matters is Okta is a good example of how much things have changed during the period of this pandemic valuation bubble. So today, the per share price of Okta is kind of roughly back to its Q1 2019 level. Wow. Which means that after several years of growth, the company is now worth effectively either the same or a little bit less than it used to be. So forget the pandemic bump to its valuation that I saw. That's all gone and then some. And the company is, I think, roughly three times as big and is actually growing slightly faster than it used to. So that's how far the landscape has changed. The goalposts have moved. The rug has been pulled. The wool has been over your eyes. <laughs> you know, all that uh, it's pretty epic. And I think that even though we've had this conversation, Marianne and Natasha, even though we've talked about it repeatedly, we've talked about it last year, I don't think it's entirely sunk in yet just how much harder it's going to be to go public at prices that people like. So I completely agree. We need to talk to more founders and kind of get the emotion because right now all I'm seeing is the high level VC perspective. If you're a founder yeah. right now, hearts are with you. Yeah. Let's take a pivot. Let's shift the conversation here a little bit away from, from jokes and so forth. Something a little bit more important. There have been a number of mass shootings in the United States in the last week. And one part of this that has come up repeatedly in our conversations is the prominence of certain technology platforms in providing spaces for people who are disaffected or perhaps a little bit unstable to come together, chat, get extra mad, and then plan mass shootings, and then also to literally live stream them. And Natasha, there has been commentary uh, across the board about this, and it is not an easy question, but really we wanted to spend a minute talking about the responsibility of technology companies and platforms and services in essentially keeping hate off their platforms and not becoming tools for you know mass murder events. Yeah. I mean, listen, the most recent Buffalo tragedy, I think really summed up how end-to-end -end and pervasive this problem is for platforms. So we got the perspective of the shooter having documented their plans on a private Discord server, then live streaming the shooting via Twitch. And now Facebook and Twitter cannot get rid of the video post it happening and people losing their lives. And so you really see that this is across the board. And to me, it's really tough to watch this happen, one, ever so often, and two, it, it's both the oldest but most significant. Moderation is both the oldest and most significant problem that social media platforms have to answer to. So it's just hard. It feels that like we haven't seen any progress beyond, okay, we're going to use humans and AI to handle this. Oh, sorry. I kind of have mixed emotions about all this. Um, first of all, it just it's kind of depressing that this shooter actually felt the need and obviously probably wanted all this attention by live streaming such a horrific act. Like, it's just unbelievable. Secondly, the attorney general who's investigating this in New York made a pretty strong statement, essentially blaming these platforms, which I didn't think was necessarily fair. Uh, the language that she used was pretty much saying that these acts were born 
out of these, quote, dangerous and hateful platforms. So while I felt like that was a little too harsh and a little too strong of a statement, at the same time, I am frustrated with Facebook for taking so long to get this video down and still and still having it so pervasive on the platform. So I, I'm kind of like on, I have mixed feelings about all this. If it was like internet 1.0, I would be like, you probably don't have everything figured out as a platform and this is your time to learn and not let it ever happen again. It's simply been so long. I agree with what you disagree with, which is I don't believe that things were born mm-hmm. out of these platforms. I think they can manifest and be triggered and amplified and even inspire, unfortunately, through these platforms. So that could definitely be a side effect. But yeah, it's really hard to know that we're so, we've made progress in so many other fronts, but can't handle this kind of very not casual dynamic that social media platforms deal with. And especially with every platform having a different kind of perspective on what's shareable. Like for example, the viewpoint of Instagram versus Twitter on nudity is literally 180 degrees. They're polar opposites, for example. And so every platform has their own rules about what's allowed, what's not allowed, their own systems for taking things down or not. And I think this just goes to show how complex content moderation is and not to bring back up Mr. Musk, but like, these are the questions you're going to have to ask yourself. What is the right time to take something down? What is the right thing to block? And then critically, how to go about doing that. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, proposed a, quote, trigger system that would essentially give law enforcement an early look at, you know, social media users who want to harm themselves or harm others. And, you know, it's one of those things that at first blush, you go, cool, a great idea. And then your second thought is, wait, no, that's a terrible idea. Who's going to be the arbiter? Who's going to read all these messages? How will we parse them? Will we use AI? That's a laundry list of issues. Will we use humans? Laundry list of issues. And then also what counts as a material desire to express harm? You know, people get tagged for like stupid, silly tweets that might theoretically threaten somebody, but real ones don't get taken down because it's hard to do. So I don't know how to handle this but I don't constrain the blame to tech platforms. I think they're a convenient punching bag across the American political spectrum, but I don't think those complaints are particularly serious. I would like to note that YouTube actually was one of the platforms where the video was very difficult to find. And I am curious as to why that was the case. Is there something different that YouTube is doing that these other platforms are not? Well, YouTube is pretty strict. I hope that there's some collaboration that happens. And yeah, getting back to, I feel like I'm a broken record here, but like you can basically assume that like this could very well happen again one day. What are you going to do next time? That is like a really hard truth to believe. And I pray that it doesn't happen again. But if you're a social media platform and it's something that you've avoided or are not collaborating with, I feel like it's just, it's so clear that it could happen again. You know what? That's actually a great rubric through which to view progress because this will happen again. It will be live streamed again. America has too many guns free floating around for this not to happen again. So we know it will, but we also can ask technology companies and platforms to do better the next time. I don't think we can ask for perfection. I don't think this is a problem you get to perfection on fixing, but at a minimum, we can expect them to learn and do and try better the next time. But I'm just going to say it like as a privacy first, free speech first person, you know, I don't think we should break encryption, for example, to make it easier for law enforcement to read people's messages, because once you break encryption, nothing works. And also, I think, you know, it's perfectly fine to offer people private spaces to chat because otherwise you live in a world of surveillance. So given those as my priors, I don't see a way to really crack down on this other than to remove guns from our culture. Taylor put it really well in her headline. She basically said there's no easy answers here. And I think that that like really... Yeah, it sums it up. sums it up. So, I mean, the question that I guess then is, do we make it harder for people to join private-only spaces? Like, maybe not minors? I don't know. Is there anything common sense and reasonable that we could propose that might actually be useful Uh, versus us just going like, ah, shit, this is again. It's like I don't know enough to know what a reasonable solution would be. All I know is that all these platforms are very much beasts of their own. And it's not like, I don't think it's negligence that is necessarily 
all at fault here. I don't think everyone's like, I don't care. I don't think like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube were like, oh, I mean, whatever. Let's see what happens. I think that there's probably very smart people working on these issues. And so the fact that we haven't been able to come to a resolution is specifically troubling. And people are watching. I think that's the really hard part, Marianne. Like you said this earlier of like, Mm -hmm. there was some reason that it was live streamed and that reason like really scares me. And yeah, it's disturbing. Yeah, it's very disturbing. It's a recruiting tactic, right? Yeah, it's like- It's like you want people to know. And I think that, yeah, social media is hard. And it's had years of this reckoning of people realizing the power of it. So I hope we see some of the new waves of social media platforms watching this happen. Like, I hope we see them do something different and build something different. Because when you're the size of Twitter and YouTube, it's a lot harder than when you're the size of a pre-seed startup. So I don't know. Maybe there's hope there. That's like the only solution I can think of. Maybe. Maybe. But I mean, like, you know, racism is not going to go away. Guns aren't going to go away. So, like, the only thing I can see platforms really being able to do is to maybe have a greater anti-racist and anti-fascist allergy in their corporate DNA. And that would help them prioritize anti-extremist precautions higher up in their, you know, list of to-dos. Because it's going to be prioritized somewhere in the stack of things that they're working on. And maybe it's not sufficiently high up. I mean, think about Mm -hmm. what happened when YouTube was under threat from music labels, right? If you watched Equity last week or the week before, we had this joke with a Creed song and we couldn't post that because it would get YouTubed and we get a strike. And YouTube got incredibly good at catching people using music they weren't supposed to use. And so, you know, maybe they could put a similar amount of effort into this and and other platforms as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's all about incentives at the end of the day, which is a really hard part about us. Like the structures. A structure feels like a big theme of today's episode at large. And like yeah. what structures have leeway, when do they not have leeway is like mm-hmm. a really hard thing to talk about. Right. Yeah. I don't think we're doing enough. I just wish I knew exactly the thing that we should be doing next. Me too. Right. Yeah. That's the big question. Yeah. I just, I want to wake up on a Monday morning and not have to read about the four or five mass shooting events that happened in my country over the weekend. You know, it's, it's, I mean, again, if your point earlier, I mean, social media or platforms aside, I mean, the root cause is that guns are so accessible in this country. So not to get political, but I feel like this is bigger than even just the social media at this point. Social media is just the thing that's yeah, convenient to punch right now because it's unpopular amongst politicians on both of America's political extremes, right? And guns aren't. So there's going to be less activity there because it's effectively stymied. Uh, I'll stop there before I get really heated again. So There is nothing that is not political, by the way. I think it's an important thing to keep in mind. And so choices that these companies make, as we've seen through the lens of Twitter and Elon and so forth, are inherently political, especially if disinformation isn't entirely equally distributed across the political spectrum. But let's... Yeah, nothing exists in a silo. Nothing exists in a silo, except for silage. Hey, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, on that somber, sad note, let's all go make a better world. Equity will be back Monday morning with some pep and enthusiasm and hopefully a different topic set. Because if we talk about Elon Musk again, I'm going to cry. But Natasha, Marianne, as always, an absolute treat. Natasha, please enjoy the rest of the event and we'll see you all next week. All right. Bye. Bye.